Read and hear more about important news, events, and public policy debates at ncnewsline.com. This is News and Views. Welcome back to News and Views. I'm Rob Schofield. Throughout most of U.S. history, state courts and judicial elections have seldom been the site of pitched political battles. While these courts regularly issued important rulings with significant impacts on public policy debates, the judges and justices who served on these courts were generally able to avoid being drawn into the bare-knuckle politics that so often characterize races for other elected offices. In recent decades, however, things have changed. In the late 20th century, the political right launched an ambitious national effort to promote and fund the campaigns of conservative judges, and in recent years, progressives have been doing their best to respond. These developments have had a big impact on the courts and American politics generally. And recently I had an extended chat with an expert who follows, chronicles, and weighs in on this subject, Attorney Douglas Keith of the Brennan Center for Justice. In part one of our conversation, Keith explained how this arose and just what a big deal it's become. Well, Doug Keith, welcome to News and Views. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. Earlier this year, the Brennan Center released The Politics of Judicial Elections, and we learned that in that report, how the Supreme Court's 2022 decision uh, overturning Roe versus Wade, the Dobbs ruling, has really sort of been a watershed moment for state judicial politics. Not that they weren't already politicized, but it seems that maybe it's really ratcheted it up. And we obviously, most states like North Carolina, elect their judges. We have a couple of Supreme Court seats up this year. Talk to us about, about this issue. It seems my impression is that the political right has long sort of prioritized controlling the judiciary. Maybe Dobbs has awakened progressives and maybe we're sort of really now facing a real pitched battle. It's true that that may be the right way to think about it. So for folks that don't know, 38 states uh, elect their high court justices. That's to the state's highest court in the in the, in the state and the court that will ultimately decide questions of state law and have the final word on those questions. Those cases don't go to the U.S. Supreme Court. And so these cases are really important in the states that elect their justices. The elections really were pretty quiet affairs for a long time. Mm-hmm. That started changing in the 2000s as particularly business interests in the state started to figure out how important these courts were for their bottom lines and they started spending money in these races. But even then, it was it was pretty sporadic. And then you see in the wake of Citizens United, when there's this new environment in which outside dark money groups in particular can really thrive, the right in particular, conservative groups, really started to focus their energies on state Supreme Court elections and even pretty publicly said, you know, they'd had so much success in other elections and now courts were standing in the way of their policy priorities. And so they wanted to make sure their their candidates got on the courts as well. But you didn't see that much attention on the left. But money still continued to flow into these races and they did get more and more expensive. But the 2022 cycle, which we just analyzed and is the first cycle to take place, even partially since Dobbs, which really shone a light on how important state high courts can be, that cycle saw almost twice as much money as any midterm cycle before it had ever seen. In part, that was because conservative groups spent even more money than they'd already been spending on these races. But it was also the first cycle in which we saw near parity between the left and the right in terms of spending, at least nationally. And so part of the story may be that a broader set of stakeholders across the political spectrum are becoming aware of just how important these courts are. And speaking of Dobbs, it looks like the state courts have become a forum in which particularly people who uh, support abortion rights have turned to the state courts in order to help, hopefully, from their perspective, preserve abortion rights. Am I right that there have been 
that number 38 you mentioned, 38 cases in 23 states challenging state abortion bans under state laws. Yeah, so there have been, in the wake of Dobbs, advocates have brought their cases to state courts and asked state courts to find that state law protects abortion rights, even if the U.S. Constitution doesn't. And so, as you said, there have been 38 cases filed and a number of state courts across the country, including state high courts, and including in states where you might not expect decisions to protect abortion access. Those courts have ruled that state law does, in fact, protect at least some access to abortions, even if the federal constitution doesn't, even if the U.S. Supreme Court finds that federal law doesn't. And so these courts have become incredibly important venues for that right in particular. But we can't forget that they are important for many different rights and many different reasons. You know, one of the reasons that these courts were starting to get attention even before Dobbs uh, was how important they are in the fight over partisan gerrymandering. A number of state high courts across the country have found that partisan gerrymandering violates their state law, even if it doesn't violate the federal constitution, which the U.S. Supreme Court found. So there are a number of issues where the U.S. Supreme Court has sort of stepped back and state courts have taken the lead. It's hard not to be struck by in North Carolina, where we've seen sort of a almost a 180 on our, our court as a result of a recent election, is that in many ways, it almost feels like these state courts in which justices are elected it's almost like a mini legislature. I mean, it feels as if they're almost quite going over the edge, but stepping right up to the line of effectively running on a platform, we're going to do this if you elect us. And in North Carolina, we had this remarkable phenomenon of a newly elected Republican Supreme Court literally reversing decisions that had been issued just months before by a court that had once enjoyed a four to three Democratic majority. I I wonder if that's just a truly exceptional situation or one that probably is indicative of a trend. You're exactly right. This is a real problem for courts today in this new era. Courts, they are supposed to be doing something different than the raw politics that legislatures or governors are doing. But in this new era where they are, the politicization of these courts is growing so rapidly, it's becoming harder and harder for the public to view them as doing something different, as sort of deciding the law independent of politics, of at least in some circumstances being able to say, you know, I wish the case would come out X way, but I think the law requires something different. And that's going to be a real challenge for courts, because as the public views them increasingly as political entities, they're going to be less convinced that court decisions actually need to be followed. And so you might increasingly find other officials in the state who disagree with a court's decision, thinking that they can just get away with not following it because the public's just going to view that as just another political decision and they can agree with it or disagree with it however they like. We're talking to Douglas Keith. He's a senior counsel in the judiciary program at the Brennan Center for Justice, where he works primarily to promote fair, diverse, and impartial courts, an increasingly tough challenge these days. One of the things I'm struck by, Doug, is that, you know, I'm a bit of an amateur historian. There was a time in our country in which it was not at all unusual for people to go from the world of politics into the judiciary. I think of former Supreme Court Justice Earl Warren. Even 100 years ago, the former president of the United States became chief justice of the Supreme Court, William Taft. Today, there's no way a U.S. Supreme Court justice could come from the world of politics. And yet it's perversely, it seems as if it's become more political in this in this modern world. Maybe it's just because people are paying more attention. Maybe it's because we're a more divided country, but it's it's a sort of striking phenomenon. Uh, it's an interesting point. At the state level, you do still see legislators uh, sending to their state high courts. But it's true, it's not something we see at the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, Sandra Day O'Connor came from the legislature as well. 
um, and also was someone who was sort of keenly aware of the challenges of electing judges and advocated for a different system in the states. And so maybe it was that experience in the legislature that actually helped her reach those conclusions. Um, but the what 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 you see when with nominees to the U.S. Supreme Court in, is that they have to sort of at least pretend to be very distant from politics uh, as part of their nomination process, even if it's easy to see that they've lived their entire life as a political creature. Uh, the, the expectation when they are nominated is that they won't appear that way. And so that may be one of the reasons we're not seeing nominees come out of the legislature legislatures in the way we have in the past. Um, but at state levels, it is something that we still right. see. Um, and often that happens in states where the legislature has actually run up against the state Supreme Court on a number of occasions and legislators themselves decide, you know what, I think I could do that job better. And then they run for office. Well, of course, here in North Carolina, we have a state senator who, who went directly from the state Senate, a Republican state lawmaker who's now on the Supreme Court. And she's actually issued some rulings reviewing some of the decisions she made as a state senator. And we also have the son of the uh, state Senate president who's on uh, being asked right now to recuse himself from some cases. One issue that occurs to me is that North Carolina for a time in the last, I guess it was at the end of the last century, maybe the beginning of this one, moved in the direction of trying to make the, the courts less partisan. We took away the partisan labels from judges when they were running for office. And we actually experimented with the idea of public financing for elections as a way to try to reduce the dark money and outside influences on the courts. That was all repealed when the Republicans took back control of the legislature. I wonder if anybody else has done that. Is there any indication that that could be at least somewhat helpful in uh, resisting this trend we see? Yeah, so we've seen other states that have adopted public financing as well and had positive experiences with it. New Mexico is the one state that currently has a fully funded public financing system for their state Supreme Court candidates. And those races, they don't really see the kind of spending, whether to candidates or outside money that you see in states like North Carolina. Um, West Virginia also uh, formerly had a public financing program for their judges, but no longer does. There are a number of ways, even if you keep electing judges, which in this moment isn't working as it was originally right. intended, to sort of take out some of the worst effects of judicial elections, limit the money that gets in, strengthen disclosure so the public actually knows who's trying to buy their courts, and make sure that judges have to step aside from cases involving major donors. There are concrete ways that states have used to strengthen their courts, even in the middle of judicial elections. But what happened in North Carolina and what has happened in other states as well is we see that legislatures, when they realize that the courts are becoming an obstacle to their policy priorities, they will change the laws around their courts to try and give them and their allies an upper hand. And that's exactly what happened in North Carolina, not just eliminating public financing, but putting party labels back on the ballot. The Republican supermajority in the legislature put partisan labels back on the ballot in North Carolina, and they got exactly what they hoped for. In the every, they've won every, uh, the Republican candidate has won all but one election that's taken place since those party labels were added back to the ballot. Uh, and then the Ohio legislature learned that lesson from North Carolina and they did it themselves. And so unfortunately, we are seeing legislators who are keenly aware of how important these courts are and aware that they have some power to tinker with them and, and maybe make them more friendly to the legislature. Coming up next, part two of my conversation with attorney Douglas Keith. Stay with us. Read and hear more about important news, events, and public policy debates at ncnewsline.com. 
This is News and Views. Welcome back to News and Views. I'm Rob Schofield. In part one of my conversation with attorney and state courts expert Douglas Keith of the Brennan Center for Justice, we discussed how state courts, including the North Carolina Supreme Court, have been transformed from mostly apolitical institutions into one of the principal battlegrounds in our modern political debate. In part two of our chat, we discussed some of the worrisome implications of this transformation and, perhaps most importantly, some of the changes that states can and should consider adopting in order to depoliticize state courts and restore public faith in the idea of an independent and impartial judiciary. What about these crazy ads? I suppose we'll see them again this year. In North Carolina, we had a rather infamous ad that our current chief justice on the Supreme Court ran, or at least maybe supporters of him ran, that couldn't have been less professional, less judicial. It was a banjo playing you know, musician talking about getting tough on criminals and that kind of stuff. And it, it just, I guess maybe that's just something we can expect more and more of until some sort of reform steps are taken. Yeah, I mean, I, I've got to say that the banjo playing ad of all the, the terrible ads we see in Supreme Court elections across the country, it that may not be the most concerning. <laughs> but the ads we do see in these races are really troubling and actually affect judicial decision making. So one of the things we see most often in state Supreme Court advertising is ads that dig into a judge's history, find some decision that at some point benefited a defendant in a criminal case. Uh, and then that judge is accused of being soft on crime. No judge wants to be accused of that. And we see these ads run in races across the country. But there's a lot of research showing that the more ads like that that are run in election, the harsher judges become in election years. They don't want to be accused of being soft on crime. So they're more likely to uphold the death penalty. They issue longer sentences. They are running scared in an election year and it changes how they decide cases. And I don't think anyone thinks that our justice system is supposed to operate differently in an election year than in an off year. So it's sort of like police officers writing more tickets at the end of their month, I guess, to meet their quota. It feels sort of like the same same thing. So uh, North Carolina, we've seen this this impact in our elections previously. Again, I guess we can look forward to just millions and millions being spent this year. Yeah, I mean, in the last cycle, North Carolina saw more money in a year of judicial elections than it's ever seen before. Of course, the majority on the court was up for st- up for grabs as a result of that election. And so that might be why uh, the majority is not at stake in this particular election because of who's Democratic seat up and there's already a Republican supermajority on the court. And so we might not see as much money as we've seen in judicial line in the past. But certainly it's not going to be a, an entirely quiet affair, especially because Justice Riggs, whose seat is up for election, is someone who has been a voting rights attorney in the past and sort of likely is going to face attacks from folks that don't like some of the cases that she's worked on um, before she reached the court. So I guess there's 12 states that don't elect their justices. Do any of them have models that, I mean, I, I can see the critique of the idea of just turning it over to the legislature or turning it over to the governor. I mean, are there any that seem to maybe be doing a better job without electing their judges? That's sort of where judicial elections came from in the first place. This isn't how most pla- most states started. Governors or legislatures were the ones deciding who sat on courts. And then folks were concerned that those decisions were happening behind closed doors. And so elections were going to bring them out into the sunlight. Today's elections have nothing to do with sunlight. And so they are not serving that role that they were supposed to play. And there are a number of states, even ones that elect judges, who are doing a better job uh, than some of these highly politicized states. You know, I mentioned New Mexico, which has 
a really robust nominating commission with voices represented from across the state, um, different kinds of lawyers, prosecutors, defense lawyers, corporate defense lawyers, civil legal aid lawyers represented on their commission. And they select judges. Uh, there's partisan balance requirements on that commission. Uh, and then those judges actually do run in partisan races after they're on the bench. Uh, but those elections haven't seen the kind of politicization that we've seen in other states. There are other states that have no elections for their judges, but have these nominating commissions that are well-designed, you know, require both parties to have balanced representation, require a mix of voices from across the state. These commissions, at least at the moment in states like Alaska is one where some of the politics of the state have become more extreme. The court has seemed to be able to insulate itself from those uh, despite attacks and despite interest in, in taking over that court. And so these systems, at, the, at least in this moment, in our hyper-polarized moment, these systems seem to be working better than judicial elections are. We actually had the phenomenon here, of course, of our legislature, a supermajority Republican legislature, sort of creating some superior court judge slots to, to point itself, sort of injecting itself into a place that had not been. I wonder if other legislatures are trying that tactic. You said that they really, legislatures are really asserting their authority over the courts. I wonder if any other states have been that sort of blatant about it. Absolutely. You know, there's so much hand-wringing at the federal level of any changes around the U.S. Supreme Court as being totally unacceptable. But this is something that's happening at the state level all the time. Uh, you know, in just recent years, the Arizona and Georgia both added two seats to their state Supreme Courts uh, to uh, enlarge majorities on those courts. In Kentucky, there's a judge who sits in the county where the state capital is. And the legislature just really dislikes this judge because he's the one who hears all the cases challenging laws that they pass, and he's often ruling against him. And so they passed a law to ensure that any cases challenging laws that the legislature passes, they actually go somewhere else in the state. They don't go to that judge anymore. But there's reason for optimism on this front, because the Kentucky Supreme Court actually heard a challenge to that law. And they said, no, you can't do that. That violates separation of powers under the state constitution. In Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, when there have been recent efforts by legislatures to just impeach justices that they don't like and to take them off the court, there was actually broad bipartisan pushback in both states that said, you know what, we get it. You don't like this decision, but this is not what the impeachment power is for. And so while this is happening across the country and not just in North Carolina, what still makes me optimistic is that it's often not successful. Um, and so we are seeing pushback. We're seeing Courts assert their authority. We're seeing political stakeholders step in and say, you can't do this. And we're seeing the public reject these ideas as well. And so it may not be all bad in this moment, but certainly there are other legislatures who are trying to influence their courts if, if they can get away with it. Sounds like it's something that caring and thinking people ought to pay a lot of attention to and, and speak up about. We sure appreciate your calling attention to it. Folks can find your reports, sign up, I, I trust, for your newsletters and such. Where should they do that? How should they get in touch with you? Uh, so you can go to our website, www.brennancenter.org. Uh, and we also just launched a new website, actually, that is dedicated to lifting up state constitutional decisions coming out of the states. You can read all about recent court decisions, access a database of major cases, and that's called State Court Report, www.statecourtreport.org. Um, and I hope people will listen, will pay attention, and will focus on just how important the courts are in this moment. Douglas Keith is Senior Counsel at the Judiciary Program at the Brennan Center for Justice. Doug, thanks so much for being with us. I hope we'll talk again real soon. Thanks for having me. 
Well, that's it for this edition of News and Views. Remember, you can check us out online and subscribe for free to some of our state's best news coverage and political commentary at ncnewsline.com. You can also listen to all of our interviews and commentaries wherever you get your podcasts. For producer Clayton Henkel, this is Rob Schofield. Thanks for joining us. We'll talk to you again next week. You've been listening to News and Views, a weekly look at state news, events, and public policy debates produced by North Carolina Newsline. Visit them online at ncnewsline.com.